Hello and welcome to Haunted Hometowns, your weekly true crime paranormal podcast with me, Blake Lambert Hack. This season, I am focusing on cases from New York City, and tonight you may know or have heard of this little park downtown Manhattan, Washington Square Park. Yes, I'm going to talk about Washington Square Park. It has a deep history in New York City, especially because, you know, it's on the south side. And, well, we'll get into it. This week has been nothing crazy. I hung out with some friends to celebrate my birthday coming up, which was kind of cute. And I watched some movies like Woman King. Viola Davis always eats. Love her. I watched this... 70s horror movie about a nun giving birth to the devil, Satan, Satan's baby. I wasn't really sure. Um, I have this weird fascination with nuns in horror movies, I guess. I don't know how to explain it. I'm, as I've mentioned, As I've mentioned before, I am not religious, and I grew up Lutheran, so we didn't really have nuns, or I know nothing about the Catholic Church, let's say that. I don't know if that's why I have this weird fascination with nuns, but specifically nuns in horror movies, like The Nun, or that three-part Dracula TV show on Netflix. I can't remember. She, that nun, killer. Love her. Or even just Sister Act. Sister Act's one of the best movies ever made. Whoopi Goldberg is fantastic. Like, I don't know. Sound of Music. I love a nun. So much so that I'm, I've been trying to piece together a plot of a nun I would like to, I would like it to be an opera, but, you know, those take a long time to come out and take a long time to work together. But I love the idea of a horror nun. I, this one, this movie was a little weird. I can't remember the name of it. It was, it kind of felt like Rosemary's Baby, but like not as creepy and had to do with nuns. And they showed this like, devil baby after it was birthed and it was gross and not creepy but not I don't know it was not cute it's on Netflix no HBO I believe HBO I don't know you'll find it if you are into horror movies like I am where you watch literally anything no matter what you'll find it and let me know what you think because it's out there But let's get into tonight's episode. It's New York City, 1818. 
the population was just under 123,000. The city has always been viewed as the freest city in the United States, the largest, most diverse, economically ambitious, and once the capital of American slavery. New York City, originally called New Amsterdam, was established in 1624, and during the colonial period, 41% of the city's households had enslaved people. Obviously, there weren't plantations in an urban setting like the South had, so enslaved people were forced to sleep in attics or cellars, and besides doing all of the housework, they pretty much built all of the early important buildings in New York City, including the first city hall in New York City and the wall that Wall Street is named after. They also, there were farms at this point in New York City as well. It was like marshlands, kind of. So there were farms in what is now Midtown, upstate, or not upstate, but like uptown New York City. And at the time, revolt, theft, arson, and murder were all capital crimes for enslaved people, resulting in death if you were arrested for these. With all of that being said, New York City was also the hub for efforts to abolish slavery. During the Revolutionary War, enslaved people fought for the British and the Americans because there was a lot of promising that they would be free if their side won. When the war finally ended, enslaved soldiers were granted freedom in New York City, but that did not mean that slavery was abolished. There's so much more to discuss on this topic, but I don't necessarily feel like the right person to get into it. And also, it's not really the main point to this story I'm telling you tonight. I bring this up because it's a crucial part of 19-year-old Rose Butler's story. So by 1810, the population of the black community tripled in New York City. Free enslaved people outnumbered the enslaved three to one in New York City. Rose was born in Mount Pleasant, New York in 1799. The same year, New York passed its act for the gradual abolition of slavery. This 1799 act specified that children born after July 4th, 1799 to an enslaved mother were legally free when male children turned 28 and female children turned 25. Rose was born in November, making her free when she turned 25. However, this law also stated that since the child is technically free, they only had to work for their mother's master, meaning the children could not be sold to another household because they were technically free. Rose Butler was illegally sold to a couple different households as a child and eventually ended up Abraham Child's house, then William Morris's house. Now, I don't know if it was a situation where 
Rose's mother was unaware of the new act that was passed only a few months earlier, or if Rose was taken from her mother without her mother's knowledge, you know, in the middle of the night or something. There really isn't any documentation with for that. All we know is that Rose was taken from her mother illegally and given to Abraham Child's house, and then Abraham Child gave her to William Morris to serve in his house. So after a year of illegally working for free for the Morris family, 19-year-old Rose tied a string from the kitchen door to inside the house and set the kitchen stairs on fire as the Morris family slept. The arson didn't have much effect. There weren't any casualties, and the only damage was a couple steps in the kitchen of the house. Rose was arrested, and immediately she admitted to intentionally causing the fire and trying to keep the family trapped inside. And with that, she was convicted of arson and sentenced to death. Now, there was a lengthy debate on whether or not her actions were worthy of death or just prison, because again, no one was injured or died, and there was very little property damage. The trial moved up to the Supreme Court, where they ruled because it was New York City, and because the city is so densely packed and highly flammable, that her actions and crime constituted first-degree arson, and she was to be publicly hanged in the potter's field just north of the city, now known as Washington Square Park. I will return to Rose's story in a bit. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of Washington Square Park, but... Her story is honestly tragic, as most stories involving enslaved people are upsetting. I just started a docu-series with Samuel L. Jackson that discusses the transatlantic slave slave route. And I'm only a couple episodes in, but it's very enlightening. I wish we learned, you know more about this in school, but I feel like that's always the case when it comes to history that does not suit the United States. But honestly, if she's setting this house on fire and seemingly wanting to kill the Morris family, it's probably because they treated her like shit. And I don't necessarily blame her for wanting to get out of the horrific situation that she's in a situation that she shouldn't have been in in the first place because she legally was free. And I talk a little bit about this later, but where she was living in Greenwich Village was the hub for most of the black community in New York City at the time. So when I was saying that free black people outnumbered enslaved black people three to one in New York City, a lot of them were still living in the same neighborhood. So you were mingling free and enslaved people were mingling every day together. So it'd be, I'm sure it'd be incredibly difficult to your neighbor 
being free and you have to go, you know, work for this family for free and they treat you horribly. Like I, that's awful. And I can't even imagine it, but we'll get to Rose's story in a second. So as I mentioned, New York City was founded in 1624 at the very southern tip of Manhattan, where the neighborhood Wall Street is now located. From my understanding, Manhattan was semi-marshy, and there were farm fields north of the colony. There was a river that ran from the Hudson through Manhattan that is now covered up. But... When New York City began expanding, the city realized they needed a place for their cemetery. And they chose the area that is now Washington Square Park because it was decently far away from where everyone was living. Andrew Hamilton was a little pissy because he had a second home in the countryside and didn't want the potter's field so close to his home. That man... The more I learn about him, he is annoying. I cannot stand him. Y'all can love his musical, but he's awful. Anyway, I use Potter's Field instead of Cemetery because Potter's Fields were for people who couldn't afford a proper burial, as well as the enslaved people that were buried there and diseased victims. It was just a space where, I guess you can say overflow, but also, you know, Poor people, people who couldn't afford to be buried in a proper, proper quote unquote grave. In 1826, the Potter's Field was reappropriated as a military parade ground named Washington Military Parade Ground. It was technically a public space, but they were used for training for the volunteer militia companies responsible for the nation's defense. So it's a new country, right? It's 1826. It hasn't, the country's not even a hundred years old. The revolutionary war, even though it's over, is still fresh in their minds. They just needed a, some kind of military situation and they use this space for, you know, training. For volunteers, though. This helped the area grow in popularity. uh, Greenwich Village, I mean. Grow in popularity. And the surrounding houses became one of the city's most desirable residential areas. The houses that, like, faced the park. By 1850, the grounds were reworked as a park. Paths were added and a fence was placed around the park. They added a fountain in 1852. The park was given a facelift in 1871 to give it rounded features, and they replaced the fountain a year later. A statue of Giuseppe Garibaldi, a man I cover in the earlier episode, Venice, the Red Shadow. So go check that episode out. A statue of Giuseppe Garibaldi was introduced in 1888 in Washington Square Park. In 1889, in celebration of George Washington's centennial inauguration, a plaster and wooden arch was erected. Plastic, sorry, plaster and wooden, so it was temporary, but the arch was so popular 
that in 1892, a permanent marble arch replaced the wooden one. And that's the one that still stands today. The iconic arch that is based off of France's Arc de Triomphe. And this got me thinking because in Chicago, they had the World's Fair. And if you look at photos from there, gorgeous. Whoever designed and built all the buildings for the World's Fair, it's stunning. Right on the lake, this white, like, statues everywhere. The bridge is beautiful. Like, everything just is stunning. But it was all temporarily built. Like, their purpose for it was to tear it down after the World's Fair. And I get why it's temporary or why it was temporary, and it saved on cost, and it was a quick put up, quick tear down. I get it. But I would have loved, loved, loved for Chicago to have kept those buildings, or at least keep most of the buildings, rework them. The Science and Industry Museum is, I think, the only remaining building from the World's Fair. So you can kind of see what it would have looked like. But imagine that whole area looking like that. It would have just been incredible. Anyway, in 1918, two statues of George Washington were added to the park. I don't know why they needed two, but here we are. There were plans in the 1950s to extend Fifth Avenue through the park which I think is a horrific idea. I will never understand major roadways going through parks. It makes it way difficult for anybody to enjoy the park. The park's not walkable then. It's annoying. I lived in Logan Square in Chicago, and Logan Square would have been such a beautiful park that people would spend tons of time at if there wasn't a fucking major road going through it. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I would have stood with the Neighborhood Watch because people who lived in the area at the time fought the idea as well and won thanks to the efforts of Shirley Hayes. Shirley had the backing of other neighbors in Greenwich Village, such as Jane Jacobs and Eleanor Roosevelt. The Washington Square Park Association is the first neighborhood organization established in New York City And it was created in support of the park and the many people who used it every day. With all the great things that have come out of this park, there has also been unrest. In 1834, New York University, that basically uses the park as its quad today. Like if you go to Washington Washington Square Park and look all around you, it's all NYU buildings. But... In 1834, the university used prison labor to dress stones for the university's newest building. And dressing stones is the act of taking raw stone and shaping it to a desirable shape and or smoothness. So NYU used prisoners from Sing Sing, a prison from upstate New York, to do all the work since it was a hell of a lot cheaper than hiring stonemasons. The stonecutters of New York City held a rally in Washington Square Park 
which was the first labor march in NYC. Of course, tensions were high, and this march slash rally turned quickly into a riot, which led the rioters to camp out in the park for four days. Now I agree, that's some bullshit. You're going to quote-unquote hire Sing Sing prisoners to do your stonework when you have a city of, especially at that time in the mid-1800s, that could do stonework like that? Come on. NYU, I know you got plenty of money. Even in 1834, I know you got plenty of money. And I'm kind of proud of, you know, stonecutters of New York City for standing up for themselves, knowing that, you know, if they didn't say anything, other businesses were going to do the same. And it's also not fair to the prisoners. In 1912, around 20,000 workers marched through Washington Square to commemorate the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, which had killed 146 workers. 123 women and girls and 23 men died in the deadliest industrial disaster in New York City and one of the deadliest in the States at the time. The building stands a block east of Washington Square Park. And I remember learning about this in school and how many workers died because the exit doors were locked by the higher-ups because they wanted to stop workers from taking breaks and to reduce theft, which I'm sure is what they claimed they were doing, even though, you know, was there theft? I'm sure there was theft. Was it because they weren't being paid a lot of money and they could barely survive? Yes. So, but to say you locked the doors because of theft, I bet, like this also said, I bet it was mainly because you didn't want them taking breaks and you wanted them to work harder than they were already working, which is insane. The workers aged from 14 to 43. They died from the fire smoke inhalation, or falling slash jumping to their deaths. Most of the victims were Italian or Jewish immigrants. The most tragic thing I read was a witness to the fire watching a man and woman embrace, kiss, then jump to their deaths during the fire. I got the same feeling reading that as I did watching Titanic and seeing the older couple spoon in bed while the water engulfed them. It's like really tragic. And all these disasters, I, it's obviously horrific for the victims and their families. I can't imagine being a bystander and like feeling helpless while all of this happens. Oh, that's what I also watched the new Boston bombing docuseries. And similarly, hearing survivors and bystanders discuss how they felt and then seeing all those videos and footage of the bombs going off, it's a lot. It's hard. I got emotional. But yeah, I could not imagine watching 
this couple, you know, not know what else to do other than to risk it and jump from this building after kissing one last time. And on top of that, no one was arrested for these murders, but the owners did have to compensate the families. Roughly $400 per casualty at the time. And the good thing, I guess, is that there were many reforms to come from this tragedy. In 1961, a park commissioner refused a permit to to folk singers for their Sunday afternoon gatherings in the park. Folk singer Izzy Young gathered around 500 musicians in Washington Square Park and sang without permits. And you know what? Good for them. 500 musicians is insane. I can't imagine that many people, especially like... Washington Square Park is not huge by any means. It's nowhere near as big as Central Park or Prospect Park. So 500 musicians would have been like a visual statement for sure in Washington Square Park. After they sang without permits, they marched through the arch and to Judson Memorial Church on the other side of the park, when they reached the church, the New York City PD riot squad appeared and attacked civilians with billy clubs and arrested 10 people. Why? Because police don't know how to fucking do their job. These peaceful people literally just singing on a Sunday afternoon folk music and you're going to bum rush them and fucking arrest them and beat the shit out of them. It's insane. And all of that unrest happened after that space was a public park. Remember, it started as land for the Native Americans, uh, several tribes, but specifically uh, the village Sapohanikan, which sat next to the Mineta Creek. Also, I know, like, the Iroquois were in that area as well. Um, But, yeah, the Dutch eventually took over the land and used it for farming. I believe the Dutch paid the Native Americans for the land. At least that's what the history books are saying. I don't know how accurate that is or, you know... I feel like, sure, they probably paid them something, but also it wasn't as, like, cut and dry as that. In 1643, former enslaved men were given land grants to maintain the farms in that area. And even though they were free, they had to pay the Dutch West India Company for the farmland. And if they had children, their children would be enslaved. So there's always a catch, always a fucking catch. However, that land grew in population for the black community, so much so it was known as the Land of the Blacks, and then later Little Africa. In 1797, 
part of the farmland was turned into a potter's field. And Little Africa continued to be a neighborhood in Manhattan until the 20th century and grew even larger after the Civil War with freed enslaved people moving north. The area is now part of Greenwich Village. And Little Africa was the neighborhood Rose Butler lived and died in. So that area, which is now Greenwich Village, started as farmland owned by Native Americans, then sold to the Dutch. The Dutch gave it to these freed enslaved men who then, you know, cultivated that area and more black people started moving there and working on the farm and it became a neighborhood for enslaved people and freed people to live in and prosper and have their own little area to maintain their culture, which I think is great. But then part of that land was sold off to the English, I believe, because I think the English took over the Dutch at this point, and it was then created for burials. The new potter's field was meant to house a few thousand people, but once New York City was hit with the first yellow fever epidemic, that number quickly rose. So yellow fever spread from Philadelphia to New York City in the summer of 1795. New York City being a marshland, it was perfect for mosquitoes. And in Philly, 5,000 out of 50,000 residents died of yellow fever just the year before. So New York people were terrified. Rightfully so. So they created a quarantine space on Governor's Island. And for those who have never been to New York City, Governor's Island is just south of the island of Manhattan by the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island, though at this time there was no Statue of Liberty or Ellis Island. This quarantining did help delay yellow fever for about two years in New York City, but because science on the disease was lacking, New York City was hit with yellow fever. The first summer, New York City experienced yellow fever. 730 people died. Fever, headaches, vomiting, fatigue, jaundice, etc. All very common signs. Businesses were reluctant to publicize the disease because they were afraid of lack of business, or migration away from New York City. But do you know what else stops business and migration? Death. The idea that we're not going to warn the public of a disease because of capitalism is fucking wild to me. No one could spend money on your business or the city if they're dead. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, people. And yellow fever just continued each summer, but it didn't get to epidemic levels until 1798, 
when 2,000 of 35,000 people died of yellow fever in New York City. And New York City was so reluctant in publishing the news that Philadelphia beat them to it. Another city published a disease outbreak in your city. That's fucking embarrassing. Another city is going public with an epidemic before you go public with it. Horrible. And after this, New York City residents moved to the outskirts of town. You know, they wanted to get away from being so dense and close to people. So the city had to quickly figure out what to do with 2,000 dead bodies. More than 2,000 dead bodies. They didn't know if the bodies could still affect the living. Remember, they didn't really know what the disease was or how to cure it. Or how to get it from not spreading as quickly. So they chose to bury the bodies in mass graves as far away from downtown as possible. Meaning the Potter's Field, which is now Washington Square Park. Every summer, New York City was plagued with yellow fever. 1805 was the last mass death in New York City from yellow fever, with 270 people dying. So the first was 1795, and the last was 1805. So 20 years, every summer, yellow fever came back and killed hundreds, if not thousands, in New York City alone. The United States' last yellow fever epidemic was in 1905 in New Orleans. And we don't have a set number for how many New Yorkers died from yellow fever between, you know, those within those 20 years. But it's definitely in the thousands. Yellow fever wasn't the only disease that was killing New Yorkers. Cholera was a big one. Uh, so these, like, mass graves and these potter's field was not only just yellow fever victims but other diseases as well, again, as enslaved people and just poor people in general. There is a tree in the northwest corner of Washington Square Park known as the Hanging Tree. Rumors state that thieves were hanged from the tree, but the only recorded hanging in Washington Square Park is Rose Butler on March 5th, 1818. Again, she was living in Little Africa, which saw a mingling of free and enslaved black people. New York City's complex relationship with slavery is why historians believe Rose's treatment drew so much attention. Again, no one was injured in the arson and the fire she set. There was very little damage, and she was technically living in the house illegally. Not on her part. The family she was working for was acting illegally. She shouldn't have even been there. But none of that mattered. It's believed that Rose being convicted was to show white people that they would be protected despite emancipation. Disgusting. And on top of that, not only was she to be hanged, Her execution was also performed in a rare public hanging. Not only were public hangings rare at this point, there's no other evidence to suggest 
that the potter's field was used to hang anyone else, meaning the city had to specifically make a gallows for her execution. Thousands of people came to watch Rose's execution as if it were a... Thousands of people came to watch Rose's execution as if it was a warning to the black community, as if they needed another warning to tell them that white people were are fucking awful. But after Rose was executed, she was buried in that exact potter's field. And nine years later, slavery in New York City came to an end. That same year, the potter's field became Washington Square Park where upwards of 20,000 people remain buried to this day. So I know I kind of jumped around with time frames of things. I hope you kept up. But I don't know why, but Rose's story and death really hit me hard and stuck with me. For I think a lot of people were taught that Northern United States was not really about slavery and we're slowly learning that that's not the case, that, you know, even President George Washington had enslaved many people in his own household. So I think it's these stories like Rose Butler's story is important to get out there and Yeah, it happened. The only hanging in Washington Square Park. The only murder to happen in the park. Horrible. So let's take a break here. We'll regroup after that tragic end. uh, And I'll be back with some ghosts to lighten the mood. For a long time, the history of Washington Square Park was lost to time, but within the last 20 to 40 years, we have gained some of that history back. Through the years, some bodies have been removed from the park, but it's impossible to move 100,000 bodies from an area, especially when we don't know who the person or people are that we're discovering in the park to this day. Con Ed was laying wires through the park when they unearthed 25 bodies, one of which had a tombstone still intact. It was of Greenwich Village resident James Jackson. Most people buried in Washington Square Park did not have tombstones because they were put in mass graves or they were too poor to buy one. There are some Native Americans buried in the area before the Dutch took the land from them. A nearby church used the northwest corner of the park for burials. So I think a handful of them have tombstones. But other than that, good luck figuring out who any of these uncovered bodies are. And even the fact that there are tombstones under Washington Square Park is wild. So whoever 
decided they wanted to make this a park, Lurie just dumped dirt on top of tombstones. Wild. The park is usually busy. Even at night, there are still a decent amount of people that hang out in the park. I've even seen a full DJ set at midnight in the park with hundreds of people attending. Like, the summers in Washington Square Park get wild, and I cannot wait. However, those nights where it's less busy, keep your head on a swivel. Many accounts of shadow figures watching people from the tree lines have been reported over the summer when ghost tours are walking through the park. Guests have experienced extreme cold spots. And I'm telling you, it's creepy. As someone who's been in the park, I, the idea of seeing a shadow behind a tree in the corner of the park, no. I think it's creepy because you, you know, at first thoughts, like, is that a real person watching me? But then also, like, real people and spirits don't really move the same way. And you kind of have a, you kind of have an understanding of who's real and who's not. But terrifying. And the hauntings aren't limited to what you see in the park today. Remember, the Potter's Field was larger than what Washington Square Park is today, so surrounding buildings also have ghosts. Mainly, the New York University campus buildings. Students have seen shadows down corridors that disappear into the darkness. One student woke up in the middle of the night to a pale figure standing over her bed. She thought it was her roommate at first, but when she looked over at her roomie's bed, she was fast asleep. The girl looked back at the ghost, and it hadn't moved, so she blinked a few times, and still the ghost remained standing there. She didn't want to speak to the spirit, so she pulled her comforter back over her head and went to sleep. Now, I'm all for ignoring ghosts and minding my own business and having the ghost mind their own business. But if I see one, see someone standing in my room or in my apartment, I'm not rolling over and going back to sleep. If it's not a ghost, it's a fucking intruder. I'm not ignoring something like that. That's insane. Like, if you hear a noise... Maybe, like, again, I think I mentioned it last episode, but I lock my bedroom door every night, and if I woke up, and I was going to say if I saw the door handle jiggle, or if the door was open, I would just go back to sleep, but that's not true at all, because safety first. I need to make sure no one's in my apartment. Anyway. There's another story about how a student had closed her bedroom door and unplugged these string lights uh, to go to bed. In the middle of the night, she woke to hearing strange noises, but she didn't get freaked out until she heard her floor creak in her room. She sat up in her bed and noticed her bedroom door was open and her lights were unplugged and her lights were plugged back in. 
A couple days later, the same lights were pulled down off the wall, and at first she thought they had just fallen, but the way the lights were sitting next to her desk means someone must have pulled them down and tossed them to the side. So that ghost does not like light. Would you stay in that building? I mean, it's a dorm room, so it's like, do you really have an option? Or I wonder if the university actually does anything about it. If you go to NYU or work at NYU or know someone, let me know because I'm curious if the university is like, yeah, we'll find you a new dorm. We're sorry. <laughs> They've got to know. They've. I'm sure people have complained about it to them before. Another student became aware of a sulfur smell in the apartment, even though her roommate didn't smell anything. They opened all the windows except the roommates, who didn't smell anything because her window had never been able to open. It was stuck ever since they moved in, and I guess several people had tried to open her window, but they could never get it open. In the middle of the night, the same night that roommate one smelled sulfur, she heard a crash in her roommate's room, but she thought it was just like a laptop falling off her desk. The following morning, the second roommate, the one whose window won't open, asked what time she had come into her room and opened the window. So... Roommate number two thought roommate number one had entered her room, opened the window, because she was opening all the other windows. She said she had never gone in to her room and that the window had just opened by itself. And she started crying, I guess, because she was so terrified. And I don't blame her. (laughs) Like, again, I don't really know if how their apartment is set up. But my room is where the fire escape is. And if my bedroom window was open, I would just think someone was trying to sneak into my room. And that's terrifying. So if it wasn't a fire escape situation and the room just flew open by itself, even though it had never been able to open before, terrifying. I wouldn't want to live in that room either. Though I guess they did finish out the semester, so good for them but incense girl incense another student attempted to go from the eighth floor to the second floor but when she got onto the elevator the elevator shook and then dropped to floor five the doors opened closed opened again closed again but no one had called for the elevator on floor five And eventually it made its way to floor two. And I guess that's a common thing for that building. Uh, That ghost has a specific name. I can't remember what, but everyone knows about it. And it only haunts that one elevator. I've seen too many elevator horror movies to fuck around with that. The Devil, Final Destination 2, those are on the top of that list. But also I went to a college in Chicago that also had a haunted elevator and would not always work correctly 
And that elevator is the smallest elevator I've ever been in my entire life. Maybe four people would fit in that elevator. If, and it would be snug. Like, insane. But I had been on that elevator where the elevator stopped moving between floors. Like, for some reason, that elevator was set up where you had to get on the elevator at floor 8. But it would skip floor 9 and 10 and would take you to 11 through 18 or something like that. And it would always get, like, stuck between floors. And you would just have to, like, sit there and wait for it to continue moving. There are other ghost stories about that that people had. I wish I could remember, but... Like, that's the same building that has the auditorium building. Well, it's called the auditorium building, but it's the same building that has that uh, the auditorium theater. And the building was built in 1946, so it's old as fuck and used to be hotel. But, yeah, that building's haunted as shit. I just wonder what makes the elevator haunted above the theater okay so i just looked it up most of the activity haunted activity in the auditorium building happens on the upper floors starting on the eighth floor and going up to the 10th and 11th floor libraries witnesses have seen apparitions of maids and violinists and seen objects move on their own apparently rooms 902 and 908 have a lot of ghostly activity and Floor 900 is the music rooms, or the floor, the music floor. So I spent my entire college career on floor 9, and I don't remember 902 or 908. But now I gotta go back. What the fuck? Between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. And yeah, the college is closed, usually late time at that point. Unless you are... Practicing music, because I do think the practice rooms are open late. So you could get a peek, possibly. Or if you know a professor that's willing to stay late with you. Anyway, there's also a New York University's Bopst Library, which sits in the southeast corner of Washington Square Park. And even though I haven't seen any recorded hauntings, it is strange that there have been 18 recorded suicides in the library. And it got so bad that the school had to install walls so no one could jump. It's like a... uh, I don't remember how tall it is. It's at least a few stories, I think there's eight or more I don't remember but the middle is all open like you can see all the way down to the the middle is all open so you kind of like walk around this I don't know but a lot of people jumped into the center so they had to put up these like see-through aluminum walls that kind of look like they were made for art but it's not really for art Suicide is the second leading cause of death amongst U.S. college students. However, it is strange to see so many students die of suicide in the same building not long after each other. So, 
I think some people believe that ghosts may have something to do with it. You know, you get those dreading feelings, and if you live with it for too long, live with a ghost making you feel horrible. That could be an option. I don't know. It's just suspicious. Paranormal. When it comes to Rose Butler, two women were interviewed years later who witnessed Rose's execution. One said the gallows were where the fountain is today, and another says the gallows were between the fountain and the arch are now. Either way, people have seen Rose's ghost wandering the park late at night, and some have even seen Rose swinging from the noose. But thank you all for joining me in another New York City paranormal investigation. Go check out the socials for photos, guest info, and upcoming news. Please give the podcast five stars and share it with your friends and family. I would really love the support. When this drops, my birthday will be the following day. So you're listening to this on Cinco de Mayo. So go party hard. I will be partying hard at the Kentucky Derby on May 6th, my birthday. I am sure I will gush all about the Kentucky Derby on the next episode, but know that I am very excited to go. I am rooting for Tappet Trice. I've been to Louisville before, but never to the Derby, so I'm pumped. Maybe I'll check out some haunted stuff while I'm in Louisville. I don't know. Send me your paranormal experiences at hauntedhometownspodcast at gmail.com. Could be anything from your child telling you that they died during World War II and naming all their best friends in the war to your mom getting possessed and vomiting black bile. Let me know. I'll see you back here in a week because everyone loves a ghost story. The theme song is by Tyre. Follow him on Instagram at Queer Popstar and go stream his music anywhere you get your music. The artwork is by Pepe Munoz. Follow him on Instagram at p.e.p.e.munoz, M-U-N-O-Z. I got my information from Slavery in New York, New York History, Untapped Cities, New York University News, or Washington SQ Park, excuse me, and the New York Post. <laughs>